Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what an amazing reality that your wounds and your absorption of the wrath of your Father has enabled me to be clean before you, righteous. God, I'm, I am not righteous. And I'm so thankful that you are. I'm forever, eternally indebted and filled with gratitude, Lord, for what you did. Nobody forced you to do it. It was of your own sovereign good pleasure to bruise your son in my stead. And truly, Father, that truth is overwhelming. I pray, Father God, that that would flavor our lives. Every little piece of it, Father God, would have, the gospel would have an effect upon. And that we would be different people. For Lord, what has taken place is we've been born again. I pray for your blessing, Father God, as we turn to your word that you would speak through your word today, and you would encourage the body and bless them, Father. I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I agree with Don. It's wonderful to see all of you here this morning. I was hoping there'd be a large group because I have a very special text that I handpicked just for today. <clears throat> so if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 36. And it, yeah, if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, um, you know, we're in the Word every Sunday, but in particular, we're going to be in the Word today. Uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages of Scripture, so you may want to have a Bible with you, um, or you can just follow along. I'll be reading them as we go. Okay, you ready? Here we go. <clears throat> These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau, Eliphaz, Basemath bore Ruel, and Oholibama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. We're not done. Verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau. Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatim, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. 
she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. <clears throat> These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gadim, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's son. The chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Misa. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibama, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the chiefs born of Oholibama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. We're at verse 22 in case any of you have lost your place. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These were the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Menahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onim. These are the sorry. These are the sons of Zibion, Aiah, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishon and Oholibama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemden, Eshban, Ithran, and Sharon. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zeavan, and Achan. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being, your best guess is as good as mine, Dinhaba. Bela died and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of, this, of his city being Abath. Hadad died, and Samalah of Masrachah reigned in his place. Samalah died, and Shal of Rehoboth on the Ephrath. On, <clears throat> On the Ephrate, Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Baal Hanan, the son of Akbar, reigned in his place. Baal Hanan, the son of Akbar, died, and Hadar reigned in his place. The name of his city being Pa. His wife's name was Mehet Abel, the daughter of Matrid, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names, the chiefs of Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, 
Oholibama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram, and Bob. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possessions. Now, Megan James, yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Megan James Sam Ben. Come on, I really. Okay, just so you know, it's the only time I'm reading, the only time I'm reading through this in this message, okay? Um, but I think these are very important. You know that. I've said that for years, that the genealogy is a very pivotal piece to our understanding of Scripture and our understanding of redemptive history. So I'm not going to skip it. Um, I think that's dishonoring to the Lord, and I'm not going to waste any portion of his word. It's all inspired. Uh, it's God-breathed. It's there for our instruction. And to skip it is basically, I think, just a way of saying to God, this portion of your word that you saw fit to have prepared and designed and in our place is not of value to us. That's wrong, so that's why, all joking aside, I think it's important to read it. All right, you guys, so Genesis is a book of beginnings. This, it was September 15th of 2015, or 15, <laughs> 19, we started this series. September 15th of 2019, we started this series in the book of Genesis. This is a book of foundations, of beginnings. As, you, as we've been walking through Genesis, we've seen God's creation mandates and his design for male and female relationships, for his design from man to God relationships. We've seen creation, the fall, so on and so forth. And it's a, it's a layout of the foundations of God's design, okay? I want to remind you kind of how this book can be divided up. All right, so I'm going to be doing a little bit of, of reading here as far as my notes, sticking close to it. Just so you remember, this is how it's divided up. Chapters 1 to 11, there's two portions, chapters 1 to 11 and then 12 to 50. 1 to 11, you have creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The fall, Genesis chapter 3. And then the rest of the book really is generations. Um, a, a dividing of, or a chopping up of the book of Genesis begins with, and these were the generations of. So every time you find that, it's kind of like you, you have another section of the book, okay? It's a good way to, to divide and understand so you can get your arms around the whole book of Genesis. So if somebody were to say, where's this portion in Genesis? You have some kind of a index to know where to turn to. So here's the generations. The generations of Adam... Genesis 5.1, the generations of Noah, Genesis 9.18, the generations of the sons of Noah, Genesis 10.1, the generations of Shem, Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, the generations of Terah, Genesis 11, verse 27, the generations of Ishmael, the generations of Isaac, Genesis 25, verse 18, and the generations of Esau, Genesis 36, that I just read for you. And then from the rest of the book really is the generations of, of um, Jacob. Abraham and Joseph. Now, there's a lot said about many different people throughout the book of Genesis, but a good portion of this book has to do with Abraham, his descendants, specifically also Jacob and his 12 sons. The rest of our study is really going to be tracking Joseph. 
Um, there's some other sideline things that happen, but really it's going to be a study of Joseph, which when the series started, my desire was to preach a series on Joseph, but I wanted the whole book of Genesis, and so here we are. So I'm kind of excited to get into that. Just so you know, here's the calendar really quick. Uh, Genesis 37 will be in 2023. Um, I've got a host of other things I'm going to be covering uh, throughout Christmas time, New Year's, whatnot. And so after today, we'll be back in Genesis the second Sunday in January. So this morning, we finish a major portion of our study. Um, Typically, people say, what was your favorite book that you got to preach through? It's the one I'm preaching through. Uh, it's just kind of how, the way, how it works. Um, you know, it's like, well, do you like this one more than that? No, it's just the one that my head is in and the one that I'm studying. And so there's a part of me that's like, man, we've covered 36 chapters together. Sunday in, Sunday out, rain or rain. <laughs> and as we, as we peruse the, the text of God's Word, what I love beloved, so deeply is that it seems to just get richer. The word does not get more dusty or, or less. It gets better, more fuller, more richer, because pieces start to fit together. Portions that we didn't know were connected are intricately connected, and God's word shows itself to be utterly profound, which we knew, but when we see it work out in the concrete, it's, it's very, very special. And so, we really are kind of on a home stretch, if you will, in the book of Genesis. But before we do that, I want to spend some time with Esau. Because it's fascinating, for weeks we covered Jacob. Week after week after week, the life of Jacob. For 20 years, not a word about Esau. And so what about this man? To the point that the scripture, God's inspired and errant text, goes so far as to spending this amount of ink to tell us about the nations that come from Esau. So today, as I'm kind of closing this section off in reference to Esau, we're going to look at this man. First off, let's look at his life and character. What do we know about Esau? So here's a list, okay? The twin brother of Jacob. Remember, God told um, Rebekah that there are two nations in your womb, Jacob and Esau. He's a man of the field a hunter. He's a man that loved his father as well as being his father's favorite. Very simple to see in the, in the text of Scripture. He was a man that was a man of great passion and a man of great emotion. You see emotion in this man and you see passion in this man. And sometimes within the same chapter, you see him go from one to the other really fast. Um, where Jacob is a little more slow. The man lived for the moment and little thought to the future. Why would I say that? Because he sold his birthright in an instant, despising it for the sake of a bold food. Sold his birthright for some stew in a rushed frenzy, and Jacob, being more strategic, shall we say, offered him the stew, got the birthright, and in that moment, I'll read from the New Testament, the New Testament's perspective on that moment, he disgraced himself, dishonored the birthright, dishonored his family, dishonored the Lord, and in that moment said, I'm starving, give me some food. Jacob took full advantage of his brother's need and sold him that. Instant gratification seems to be something that is pretty hovering over Esau. 
Esau went against the accepted norm of his fathers and took foreign women as his wives. This caused great pain and frustration to his parents. Go to Genesis 26. Like I said, we're going to be flipping around in our Bibles a bunch this morning to show this to, to show that this is the case. So chapter 26, verse 34. Um, a good portion of where we'll be turning is, is in the book of Genesis and what we've covered thus far. 26, 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Also, I would remind you that Rebekah was very, very irritated to the point where she did not want her other son, Jacob, to marry one of these foreign women. She says that would be just excruciating to her. This wasn't an accepted norm by Abraham, this wasn't an accepted norm by Isaac, and it wasn't an accepted norm by Rebekah for Jacob, and yet we see him, Esau run headlong into these marriages. Again, to some extent, living for the moment. He lost his blessing to his mother and his brother's conniving trick. With great emotion, he pleaded with his father for a blessing on him, which he did not get. And in hot anger, he comforted himself with one thought. I will get to take the life of my brother Jacob. I will kill Jacob. That's what comforted this man in that moment. He's disgraced me. He tricked my father. And he's stolen this from me. And so I'm going to kill him. Again, a man of passion. A man of action. And yet, instant forgiveness for Jacob after an interval of 20 years. Remember a few weeks ago as Jacob was scared to death to come in and face his brother, as he came back, we're told that in an instant, Esau quickly forgave Jacob, took him in, loved him, embraced him, and forgave him. He showed great generosity and largeness of heart in his offers to Jacob. And then together they grieve the loss of their father alongside one another. Now go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Remember, your New Testament is your inspired interpretation of your Old Testament. What it says goes. Chapter 12, verse 15. Hebrews 12:15 See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral now it's interesting here's the new testament author right he's thinking no sexually immoral Where could you draw from the Old Testament, right? What character could you bring up from the Old Testament to point to as an example of being sexually immoral? Well, you have a massive list in your Old Testament of people you could bring up. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, the author of Hebrews particularly plucks out one individual from the Old Testament. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And you recall that instance where he's pleading with his father in tears, with great emotion, bless me, bless me, do you only have one blessing? So this is the New Testament statement about this man. I find it fascinating that we see, not only does it speak to perhaps instant gratification or speak perhaps to the desire for the blessing, but particularly points to the sexual sin of Esau. He's exhibit A, according to the New Testament authors, of sexual immorality. And you see that throughout many wives and no doubt a man driven by his passions. Esau appears to be, from what we see in the Bible, an immoral unstable and lust, and I don't just mean sexual lust, but his passions, lust-driven man of action who lived for the moment. Esau appears to be an immoral, unstable, and lust-driven man of action who lived for the moment. Does that mean that it's pure negative? Well, no, of course not. Remember, he showed great generosity to his brother Jacob. He forgave him instantly said, I'll leave a bunch of people with you. Heck, you can come with me back to my camp, and I'll, and I'll take care of you. And yet the New Testament gives a very clear picture of who this man was. Now, the structure of the actual genealogy. I'm going to move through this fairly quickly, okay? You can do your own study if you want about what each individual name means and whatnot. By all means, go for it. Uh, but here's the structure of the genealogy. So turn with me back to Genesis 36, just so you can have it in front of you on your lap. Verses 1 to 8 lists the wives of Esau. There's 81 names roughly in this genealogy. Verses 9 to 14 is the 12 sons of Esau. Verses 15 to 19 are those who were co-inhabitants at Mount Seir. Eventually they took, they took a hold of Mount Seir and they took complete control of it uh, from the Horites. And then in verses 31 to 39, you see eight kings ruling in Edom. So it's kind of a transition from tribal structure to a kingly structure. What's being done in this, in this list of names is not only the list of names, but also there's narrative here telling us kind of the, the formation or the structuring of Edom. So you're told about the wives, told about the sons, told about the tribal chiefs, told about the kings. And it's just showing us that this is getting more and more refined. As it's being refined, you also see that there's far more intermarriage with the other foreign countries throughout this as it's maturing and growing. Now, you saw in chapter 36 that as these kings were ruling and reigning, this was taking place way before Israel had their kings. So a big nation of people that is getting more and more structured is really what's being communicated here um, in in this genealogy. And then verses 40 to 43 is emphasis on sphere of ownership and influence. A number of Edomite chiefs, according to their clans and locations, showing that their sphere of influence and their sphere of of control of property was just growing immensely. 
this is not a tiny little tempest in a teapot. This is, this is a great big nation that has been getting wealthy, larger, larger, larger from the point of wife, 12 sons, then they had sons, and they had sons, and they had some tribal chiefs, but then they eventually had kings, and they had great sphere of influence. They eventually left because the scripture says that the land could not hold all of Jacob's stuff and things and people and Esau's, whether that's the case or not, is debatable. I won't go into that, but it is debatable. But regardless, they did separate, and he goes to Seir and eventually takes over that whole land. And Esau's people become the Edomites. It becomes known as Edom. That's what's being told in this text. Now, what I find fascinating is that there most certainly is a partial fulfillment to a prophecy in this. Remember, Abraham was promised, nations will come from you, right? Remember that? Well, what's interesting is we read that, and our very first thought is Abraham. Yeah, nations will come from Abraham, right? We're going to have the 12 tribes and so on and so forth. Yeah, but there's also a partial fulfillment coming from Esau. I mean, my goodness, not only is it large, but it way precedes the nation of Israel in in its development. And so there most certainly is a nation, a group of nations, flowing from Abraham down to Isaac and now to Esau, as well as Jacob. But looks are deceiving. We need to be very careful judging God's blessing because we see wealth, prosperity, and things getting maybe more bigger, larger. That's a, that's a lie of our world, right? More means better, right? Like a toothache, you get more of them, it's better. <clears throat> no, more is not always better. The truth is, as we see with Esau, we walk through the history of Esau and the history of his people, and it is icky. Uh, as you walk through and see all that's done and the great animosity between the two brothers and the tribes that come from the two brothers is epic. As you see the massive battles and fightings and discrepancies between the two throughout history. So let us be careful not to say, oh, so God blessed Esau and Jacob. In part, I would say that, yeah, that's certainly arguable. But when I look at the people of God, the nation of Israel, and I look at the Edomites, they are not one and the same. By no stretch are they one and the same. One is absolutely, utterly disobedient to the Lord, and the other one the Lord has decided to place His grace upon. Do you remember in, um, in the Old Testament, He specifically speaks to why He lays His grace on Israel. And the interesting part in that passage is He says nothing about them in the sense of what, they, what drew God to place His grace on them. And I know, beloved, the doctrine of election is hard, and we wrestle with that, and we struggle with it, and we seem that's not fair, so on and so forth. But the Old Testament says with utter clarity, the reason the nation of Israel has God's blessing on it throughout the old pages of the Old Testament is because God said, that's the one I'm going to place my love on. Hard for us to choke down at times, because we have our own sense of fairness and all that kind of stuff. All I can say is I bow to the text. Deuteronomy 7, if you want to read that on your own at some point. Not Esau. Remember this. Remember this. This is so striking. At the very beginning, Jacob I love, but Esau I've hated. 
And I'm going to show you throughout, the New, throughout your Old Testament, this is actually a reoccurring theme. This is said in the minor prophets as we're getting much closer to the time of the Lord Jesus. We see that there is, there is a reoccurring theme, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. All the way that we come to Romans chapter 9, that the Apostle Paul draws that very text and puts it smack dab in the middle of his argument. And so no, this isn't equal. This isn't two brothers that are ultra-blessed. This is one brother who has received the blessing of Almighty God. Remember, at the very beginning, the older shall serve the younger, was said right off the bat. So, here's what I want you to do with me. I want you to track with me as we walk through some portions of our Old Testament in reference to the great animosity between Jacob and Esau. Not just the two men, not just the two brothers, but the two people groups. Remember, what we're seeing in Genesis 36 is the people group, the nations that are flowing from Esau, all right? The Edomites, Edom. Jacob and Esau, Genesis 25 to 36, and I'm just giving that as a big swath of Old Testament between the two brothers. Animosity all over the place. It is kind of sweet that at the end, we do see kind of a, a rejoining of the two brothers. Um, I mean, it just naturally does our heart good to see the two sons come to their father's burial. As they come together where Jacob is scared to death of Esau, and Esau forgives him so fast, invites him to come with him. Jacob obviously is still frightened of him or just doesn't trust him, so he doesn't go with him. But the text of Scripture doesn't leave us with animosity between the two brothers. It doesn't speak of that. It just kind of stops with the burial of their dad and then the the family of Esau. But for the rest of your Bible, there's nothing but animosity. Look at Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. And I'm going to be at verse 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. Isn't this interesting? It speaks about the two nations as brothers. The two men are dead, but the two nations are referred to as brothers. This is what he says to Edom. You... You know all the hardship that we have met, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we lived in in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers. And when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you. 
And the people of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Not off to a very good start, really, um, as you look at the relationship between the nation of Esau and the nation of Israel, nation of uh, coming from Jacob. So that's number one. Number two, look at 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. And there's a lot of other passages, you guys, obviously, in reference to the nations coming from Esau. I'm just giving you a taste of what your Bible says about the animosity between these two people groups. Chapter 20, verse 14. Yeah, I think I've got the wrong text in there. Chapter 14, verse 47, I'm sorry. 1 Samuel 14. Verse 47. And if that's not it, we will skip it. <clears throat> ah, there we go. Verse 47 of 1 Samuel 14. Then, or when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom against the kings of Zobah and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. This is, a, this is a continual thing we're going to see over and over again, the animosity between these two brothers. Remember, the older shall serve the younger. All right. Now, he fought with King David as well. I'm going to just move past that just to show you, fighting with Saul as king of Israel, he fought with David as well. Psalm 137. Psalm 137. This is going to be Psalm 137, verse 7. Now, remember, the prophet's job, they're the mouthpiece of the Lord. They're crying out against all wickedness, so on and so forth. And so here's the psalmist, as a prophet of the Lord, speaking against Edom. Verse 7, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Talk about harsh language. My word animosity doesn't come anywhere near the kind of harshness between these two people groups to the point that the psalmist of the living God, speaking on behalf of God, says, blessed is the one who destroys every last one of you. Speaking about the brood of Esau. Jeremiah 49 Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 17. 
Again, a prophet of God, tough job. You're calling out judgment constantly. Come home, your wife says, what did you do today, honey, at work? Oh, I spoke out judgment again at the nations. Verse 17. Edom shall become a horror. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its disasters. As when Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities were overthrown, says the Lord, no man shall dwell there, no man shall sojourn in her. Behold, like a lion coming up from the jungle, the Jordan against a perennial pasture, I will suddenly make him run away from her. And I will appoint over her whomever I choose, for who is like me, who will summon me? What shepherd can stand before me? Therefore, hear the plan that the Lord has made against Edom and the purposes that he has formed against the inhabitants of Teman, even the little ones of the flock shall be dragged away. Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. At the sound of their fall, the earth shall tremble. The sound of their cry shall be heard at the Red Sea. Behold, one shall mount up and fly swiftly like an eagle and spread his wings against Bozrah. And the heart of the warriors of Edom shall be in that day like the heart of a woman in her birth pains. The communication of the prophets is just breathtaking as they're drawing a picture of the destruction that's coming. So, beloved, let's just take a pause for a second. So, are you tracking with me? This is what your Bible says about Esau's descendants. You go back and read Genesis 36 and you go, wow, God blessed him and gave him a massive group of people that came from him. Did he? In part... But really, what happens is throughout the rest of this history is they are a people that are utterly judged by the living God. Wrath, judgment, strong, strong language spoken by the prophets of God in reference to Esau's children. Okay. Um, you don't have to turn there, but Obadiah. When, it's just one chapter. When was the last time you read Obadiah? Don't answer that. Just when was the last time you sat down and got yourself comfy with a really good cup of coffee and said, man, Obadiah sounds good tonight. And you start to read Obadiah. Probably been a while, I would imagine. Obadiah is a one-chapter book where this prophet lays bare the sins and the coming destruction for Edom, specifically. Now see, what was interesting, beloved, is as I'm studying this this week, I'm just turning page after page in my Old Testament going, man, Esau's descendants are everywhere in my Old Testament. This is all over the place. Yes, a nation that came from Abraham, but a nation that was under judgment constantly in friction with Jacob's descendants, Israel. Malachi chapter 1, last book of your Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord's love for Israel. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, 
I have laid waste his hill country. It's interesting, the back and forth between singular and plural. This is a large group of people he's speaking of, but he he uses Esau as a depiction of that one people group. Verse 3, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we, will re- but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Matthew chapter 2. Verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, this is Herod the Great, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring him or bring me word that I too may come worship him. Yeah, right. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now it goes further into the story, and we hear about this king killing the firstborn children. King Herod is an Edomite. So you have an ancestor of Esau seeking to destroy the king of kings from Abraham. It's amazing to me to track the parallels from these two boys that came from Isaac and the animosity between them throughout your entire Old Testament all the way to King Herod and Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. Absolutely astounding what is tracking here. So that kind of wraps up much of the animosity. I just want to remind you that God's word is shown to be absolutely true in Genesis 25, 23, and 27, 39 to 40. Two prophecies specifically spoken about Esau that this man would be a man who lives by the sword. This is a man who's constantly fighting, always fighting, and he was throughout history. And a man that did not have God's blessing upon him. As his father gave the blessing to Jacob, that was Almighty God declaring his blessing upon Jacob. God's word is absolutely true, and this is where we hear last of Esau in the storyline of the book of Genesis. But obviously, as you can see, certainly not the last we hear of his family. 
So where do we land here? How do we, how do we apply a passage like this? Well, number one, let me just say this. It always moves my heart when I come to a genealogy thinking of the incredible amount of years represented in all those names and how fast it goes by. The brevity of time, I think, is extremely clearly portrayed every time we read a genealogy, because we just read this name, this name, this name, this name, this name. Yeah, but you read the amount of years, and yet so fast, so quick, slides right through your fingers. So here's a thought. Thinking, living, and praying with generations to come in mind. Now I know that often and fairly quickly in our circles when we are, as believers, we are ready to go when the Lord returns. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's right and good. But sometimes it can slip into almost an escapism where we just talk about, well, I'm out of here, so I'm not too worried. As long as the Lord just comes and I'm, I'm taken, then everything's fine. The interesting part is I don't find that in the Scripture. In the Scripture, I see a great concern for the generation coming behind, uh, a passion for the generation after generation after generation. I mean, my goodness, you guys, as we walk through just the book of Genesis, let alone the rest of the, of the Old Testament, there's consistent aspects that are done by certain people that affect the generation coming behind them. So I want to ask you this. Are you living the Christian life with generations coming after you in mind? <clears throat> I'll admit, as a real young guy, it just it, it doesn't come as quick. But the older my children get, the more I consider it. And so grandparents and great-grandparents thinking, what, what will my great-great, if the Lord tarries, great-great-great-great-grandchildren inherit from what I do today as a Christian man or woman? Last text of the morning, Judges chapter 2. It's after Joshua. Judges chapter 2, look at verse 6. Then Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel, went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlined Joshua, or outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnah-Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And sadly... And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. 
as we pursue the Lord, as we walk in Christ, as we seek to understand his word, as we seek to walk in obedience to observe what we see in the word, Beloved, can I just remind you, as I have been freshly reminded, that which is going on in your life today has impact on generations to come. I have the blessed privilege of a fresh image in my mind, I say fresh because it just doesn't go away, of the very last afternoon spent in the presence of my grandfather as a godly guy leading Bible studies at his old folks' home, I don't know what the appropriate term is, and he led that Bible study pouring into men up to the point that his body just stops and he goes to be with Jesus Christ. Incredible impact from generation to generation. As we pursue our Lord and walk in obedience to his word, may we do this with the generations following behind us in mind. These long lists of names in our Bibles should consistently remind us that who we are and what we do truly affects those coming after us. Not simply living for the moment, but walking in Christ and giving ourselves to His service and and the preparation of the next generation. There's a lot of lessons we can learn from Jacob and from Esau. One lesson from Esau is this man seemed to live for the moment rather than thinking about the impact he would have upon his ancestors, on his family. Beloved, what you do matters. What you do counts. What you do in the Lord has great dividends that will come through. In what way? I don't know. That's up to the Lord's sovereign will how he does that. And I trust him completely. He'll he'll take full care of that. But what I see in my Bible is that we must recognize we are not just living for ourselves. There's people watching, there's grandkids watching, kids watching. There's another generation coming behind us with some of the most oddities that are coming after them on attack. What a time to be thinking generationally with an idea of how best to serve the generation coming after us. And so, beloved, these genealogies, they're not a waste of ink. They're particular, they're special, they're sweet because they remind us You are not here alone. You're not isolated. It's not just about you getting out of here by the skin of your teeth. It's by preparing, serving the Lord that this generation that comes behind you knows the God that you know and love. That statement in Judges is one of the most harshest judgments on a nation that another generation comes that has no clue. Oh, beloved, there are generations in this country who have no clue about the living God. And so I pray that would stoke the fire for us to open our mouths and speak the truth of God and trust Him with those results. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, it is so heavy to think about all of the details and years